All right, it's time for Cubicle Insanity. It's Kim here. Hey, loyal listeners, don't worry. Tammy will be back. She's just away for the day, but she will be back. No worries. Today, I've enlisted a colleague to join me to talk a little bit about that which we love, the cubicle insanity that occurs regardless if you're in corporate America, government, or a volunteer organization. We all have cubicle insanity. Of course, our podcast is a discussion about the real insanity from cubicles in the workplace, from leadership to leaders to experiences with life in the cubicles. Let's get into our latest cubicle insanity. So we often hear you own your own career. We hear it all the time. What happened to the good old days where when you worked hard, you got ahead? In other words, a promotion. Well, today we have Allison. Allison is a colleague of mine who is responsible for talent management in a Fortune 500 company and considered by many surveys one of the best companies to work for. We won't name the name. You can find us out on the interwebs, but we're an awesome company. So before we get into talent management and that heavy discussion or fun discussion, let's get a little let's get to know Allison a little bit. You ready, Allison? I'm ready. Hi, Kim. Oh. All right. Thanks for joining us today. All right. So yes, let's I'm get very to know you a little bit. Where were you born and raised? So um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I was actually born in Paris, France. Um, my, both my parents are from New Jersey, and uh, my, my dad's uh, job at the time required him. He was actually an expat, so he traveled around the world, and um, he met my mom at work. And uh, you know, shortly after, after they were married, um, probably within um, about a year and a half, um, my mom was pregnant with me, and he had an opportunity uh, to, to work in Paris. And it was interesting because um, part of what we may talk about in this discussion here with talent management. And my dad said, um, you know, the, the role came up. My dad a, was a senior level or an executive level accountant within the company doing project accounting. And uh, the assignment came up in Paris and, and nobody else wanted to do it. Um, so my dad said, uh, who, who came from, uh, you know, a lower, uh, you know, working class uh, family thought, wow, uh, this is quite an opportunity for a guy who used to live in the YMCA while he went to college. And uh, my mom came from a very low income background. So they went to Paris uh, when my mom was about six months pregnant with me. And that is where I was born. Um, after that, uh, spent some time in Texas, uh, Houston, which is where my sister was born. But then fundamentally, my formative years uh, did circle back to New Jersey. That might have been a little bit of a longer answer than you were expecting, but um, gives you a little bit of context. All right. So did uh, you just said that your dad worked outside the house. What about your mom? Did she work out of the house once uh, you um, and your sister got a little older? Sure. Yeah. So once my sister, uh, you know, both of us were sort of, there's been a five-year age difference between me and my younger sister. Um, we're sort of old enough to care for ourselves at home uh, in North Jersey. Uh, she did return to work and actually worked with one of my dad's colleagues who had uh, gone on to, to work in another business. And she returned to the work as an executive assistant, which is what she was doing um, before she had me. Uh -huh. and she was meeting my dad. But I will say she was not my father's executive assistant. She, she worked over in the legal department. My dad was in accounting. So executive assistants, you know, one of the things that uh, you often hear is they are the glue. They're the ones that actually run the companies. I believe that mm. to be true. Yes. And I will also say at times, I found that sometimes um, to be the most, one of the more difficult positions to, to fill in the organization while both the executive assistants and the executives, um, you need the right person in uh, both those roles. So I yeah. agree with you. Absolutely. All right, so uh, question number three, what are you currently binge watching? <laughs> so um, I'm currently finishing up season two of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, if I'm getting the title of that new series correct. Um, it's actually on Prime, and uh, it's about a female comedian who has a little bump in her marriage in the 50s and uh, hits the uh, comedy circuit in, uh, in New York City. And I am enjoying it incredibly. Yeah, my mom just discovered that, uh, that uh, program, and she keeps calling it Mrs. Maples. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mrs. Maple. But that's okay. Yeah. I think that's all right. Here. You know what? 
she knows what she's, you know what she's talking about. And yeah, yeah hey, listen, uh, you know, if she, if she found it, it's making her happy, then that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So basically, you're kind of sort of from Jersey. Uh, you grew up there, yes. right? Yes. All right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So are you a fan of the show, The Real Housewives of New Jersey? <laughs> um, so I will say, I love the Housewives franchise. I'm a huge Bravo fan. Um, that is a lot of times like just sort of uh, more how I sort of uh, disconnect sometimes, a little bit of mindless TV, which 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 I enjoy. But interestingly enough, the only one I don't watch is The Real Housewives of New Jersey. And I think that is, or I know that's because I'm actually from New Jersey. So I can't suspend my disbelief and go, oh, that's how the rest of the state is. Uh, it. So it's funny if anyone's, uh, you know, over at Comcast is tracking my, uh, my watching habits or what I pull from on demand, um, they'll see everything in the Bravo universe, but Real Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so do you have a favorite housewife then? Of, in, 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 oh, yeah, I feel like I'm on Watch What Happens Live in your Andy. Um, <laughs> I, love, I love them all. You know, depends on the day, but you know, a standout for me is always Candy, who's from the Real Housewives of Atlanta, and she's mm. part of the um, musical group Escape, which I remember from uh, you know, um, growing up in New Jersey. So, um, yeah, right. I've always just held true and really like candy. So okay. I'll, I'll call out candy as my favorite. All right. Okay, good. So final, uh, get to know you. Do you like Walgreens? Uh, yes, I do. I, uh, I met my boyfriend at Walgreens. I always say, um, it is the corner of happy and healthy. And he always said, um, or always says that Walgreens has a great benefit plan. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I do like Walgreens very much. Right. <laughs> and I was there last night. <laughs> okay. uh, on a date? No, you don't have to answer that. Um, okay. So let's. Uh, I, I went by to say hi to him. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So let's get into the real subject here of talent management. So, Allison, tell us what. Um, talent management really means what what is your definition of talent management? sure right yeah i think of uh you know depending on who you ask you'll, you'll probably it's like love you get a different answer or a different experience depending on um <laughs> you bring up the topic too so when i think about talent management i really think about um obviously getting the right person in the right role but then it is knowing what your key roles are and having not only the right talent in in that role but then planning for successors or talent um, to be ready to take on that role um, in a very mindful and, and, and thoughtful way. But also at the same time, I do include in there thinking about what the organizational needs are in terms of not just short term or today, but longer term. Because again, as we know, things move quickly. There's always lots of things happening in any given um, company, industry, economy, region. Um, so really combining those two things together because it's not just about the people or just about that company or that role. But again, thinking about longer term, what um, the needs are going to be, because ultimately, uh, you know, the organization needs to be served by having uh, the right people in the right role and then talent ready to take that role um, or any of the identified roles um, if and when they become open. All right. Good. What about, um, you know, when you, done some Google, you know, talent management. I just put that in there and, and it came up with a lot of different, you know, descriptions, but the most common one was performance reviews mm. is, is the linkage to talent management. And I get the linkage uh, mm -hmm. of the promote or fire type, but what are your thoughts and one tying talent management to performance reviews, but also what do you think about the quantitative ratings versus the contrast to annual reviews where it's kind of like ongoing coaching and in, in, um, continuous feedback throughout the year? Sure. So it, it's interesting, right? So Google talent management, as you as you indicated, and, and performance management um, comes up. And I don't. It's probably, um, you know, again, I, I get I get in a sort of it's probably most simple um, format or terminology. I, I can see why that would come up um, in in the search. But I think talent management is so much more than just performance management. I think performance management is a piece of it, but talent management is also thinking about um, capabilities. Um, potential and then also aspiration 
because if I, if I even circle back to the story I shared about my dad, when he went to Paris um, with my mom, <laughs> um, it was because nobody else had raised their hand or wanted to go, right? So there might've been people who were um, maybe even more, more qualified or, or capable of, but for whatever reason, they weren't aspirational. So that's why I think it's not just about performance management because you also have to take um, into, into account potential um, as well as aspiration, and then even thinking just a little bit about, you know, how aspirational in terms of is, is one mobile. Um, so then when I think specifically about performance management being, you know, rankings versus ongoing discussions, I think having the discussions on an ongoing basis is much more meaningful. I think it's, um, you know, you're able to impact performance and influence behavior with ongoing discussions and touch points and, you know, really a back and forth where you're, you're engaging um, a colleague that you may be working with. But I also recognize um, having uh, a, an overall ranking or assessment, if you will, um, at least once, if not, you know, twice a year, I think um, for our company, Kim, you know, mid-years um, and end-of-year uh, assessments, you need those ultimately for, I think, um, you know, legal reasons, uh, but then also at the end of the day, I also think some managers or people leaders will, it, it, it forces those who may not be as comfortable to be as direct um, as, as may be required either with a colleague or somebody on their team or in thinking about calibrating performance and, and doing some type of ranking when those types of activities are required. So I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, <laughs> it off topic, but um, the, the my initial thoughts. Yeah, so you talked about calibrating talent, and it's always an interesting one, um, regardless if you have a formal quantitative review or, you know, it's an ongoing, but calibrating talent is always an interesting subject because, right, every manager is different, and mm -hmm. so they see talent and talent development very different. Would you say, well, so a couple of questions here. Talent yeah. management, you're saying equals talent development. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Again, I think it um, depends on, on who you ask in the context of the conversation. So I think talent is made up of um, probably, you know, if, again, if I'm going back to our company, right, which is sort of where my, my island, you've got talent acquisition, which is how do you, you know, get talent, attract talent, whether it could be internally or externally. Talent management, I think, is the active management of talent um, Again, I think more about like succession plans and those kinds of things. And then talent development, I think more about, it could be structured learning or, you know, on the job learning. So if you think about that 70, 20, um, 10 rule. So yeah. um, does that, does that resonate with you, Kim? Or? Yeah, it does. Um, so I, I see it too, you know, again, companies I've seen talent management equals talent development. The other um, question I had about, you know, is talent development equal to talent management in all encompassing is, is um, how do you, how do you um, keep managers calibrated themselves so that they see talent pretty similar? Because, you know, when you think about talent management and just looking at how you help people develop and you manage their careers and things, help them manage their careers is, I might see somebody as a high performer, great leadership, and you might have somebody in your organization that you think the same, but you and I see our respective talents opposite. You see what I mean? Like I might think your yeah. talent is like, right. like, yeah, good person, good performer, <laughs> but I don't see big leadership out of that one or vice versa. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, we come across that pretty, I'll say, I'll say all the time, but, you know, enough that it's not, you know, unique um, or, or standalone. So, yeah. So whether it could be, uh, you know, a, a more junior level role or a very senior level role in, in an organization where you have um, people, you know, weigh in or other colleagues who, who make the decisions around planned moves, um, say, hey, I'm supportive or another person who says, hey, I'm not. Um, so I think, again, going back to calibration and just that, you know, term or, or the exercise, and some companies do this very formally, others do it informally. 
Um, and, and it also may be unwritten, but I think it's, it's not a, a one-step process where you go, okay, everybody's on the same page about what the expectation is. I think it's like any other theme or communication. <clears throat> it's an ongoing um, dialogue and, uh, you know, touch points with, with the people or the colleagues or the leaders who are making decisions um, around talent about what good versus great versus excellent looks like, as well as what's needed for the short term and long term, as well as what those um, trade-offs may be required to be. So I think organizations that tend to have set processes um, and structures around formally getting together and having those discussions and having those reviews are in a better place to be calibrated and be more alive. But there's also certainly organizations, um, again, I think about our company, which is very big and um, has been a number of acquisitions through the years. Um, one organization that we acquired, probably about 3,000 employees, the CEO of that company made all the final decisions. So it was interesting when we mm. were bringing them in to be part of our organization, talking to department or functional leads, like, you know, maybe operations and R&D, they each have an opinion or say, hey, this is how we think something should be done in terms of, you know, creating a product and, and those types of things. And then they wouldn't talk to each other, right? And it was weird because we'd go, Hmm, why don't these two very senior people talk about something that seems to be clearly obvious that they would talk about, but they were coming to, you know, us or the integration leader to say, hey, this is the point of view of this one, you know, of operations, this is the point of view of R&D. And it was really like a push multiple times to have a conversation. Oh, no, no, the two of you should talk about this, make a decision or a recommendation or present some options. Because ultimately, they, in their you know, previous structure, when they were separate from our company, they, the CEO always made those final decisions, right? So it wasn't even necessarily that they had to calibrate or that it was an option to calibrate. It was more just, I'll put my thoughts forward on my area, my team, the work that I do, even if it was representing you know, 300 plus people, and then the CEO would have a final um, say so again that that calibration didn't happen but that was the structure of the organization wow so, that's, again, uh, it, it, yeah it, it's fast because things where you're mired in your own um culture or way of doing things at, at an employer and you go oh doesn't everybody just do it that way even though you know intellectually or academically that they don't when you actually see them play out you're like wow that is just such a different way to operate but it was really yeah. like having to empower them to have the conversations both about the work but then also about people and about leadership and about succession plans you could really see that that was one of the bigger shifts for their culture for their leadership team was to talk about talent talk about work in a cross-functional cross-team um, manner but then get on the same page in as much as, you know, anyone can get on the same page about anything, but, you know, having that cadence of discussions um, and reviews. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like a scary uh, type of organization where the CEO is making all the, yeah. talk about lack of empowerment. I would not, I personally would not want to work for that. That. Ugh. Yeah. Cause we've talked about them though. Yeah. And I don't even know, because again, it's almost like, um, you know, like, you know, the water just gets warmer or colder as you're sitting in it, right? Like, I don't yeah. even think people realized it was just sort of how that place operated. But I will say it was very successful business, though. <laughs> well, that's that's a good thing. But, you know, yeah. prior episodes, we've talked about leadership and ownership and empowerment. And so... Yeah. yeah, and look, that was part part of it. I will say to to follow on to your point there, right? That company, the reason it was going to become part of a much larger organization, Kim, that you and I are a part of, is because it couldn't grow and scale anymore. And that really was because the CEO was the one making all the decisions, right? Yeah. It just it could it hit that point where it had done really well and it was attractive to buy, but it um it wasn't sustainable. So you're absolutely right. That is not a way to function longer term. Um, and even if it's working in the short term, you're going to max out at a, at a place because it's just not sustainable or scalable. Yeah. So you talk about that, that company and their approach with talent management and things, but, and you've done talent management for quite some time. What, what trends have you seen? Like if you go back, say 15 years, 
think back to then to now, what are there changes, big swings in talent management and how companies think about it? Or is it pretty yeah. much, hey, it's been pretty much the same? <laughs> yeah, um, great question. So, I mean, definitely changes. Um, well, the sort of, I think the principles remain the same. I think the dynamics or the environment in which they operate have certainly shifted or, or evolved, if you will. And I think one of the biggest things is just how fast it has to move. Um, so, you know, just by virtue of technology, you know, globalization, um, you know, the way we communicate uh, with each other at work, um, outside of work, and even just how we take in information, um, you know, as, as individual consumers on the planet, all of that happens so quickly. So that from a talent management standpoint, thinking about, you know, whether it's people, um, roles, structured learning, um, what's coming next and what we have to plan for, that information c can shift, you know, on a dime, right? So that it's, again, it's not just about, okay, we've got something that's happening at a specific site in a specific state or in a specific country. And it, there seems to have been, you know, 15 years ago, maybe uh, it felt more paced in some ways, um, but because information is coming in so quickly about um, any conversations we're having with colleagues internally or externally, what's happening in the market, um, what's happening, uh, you know, in, in a given industry, that information, once you have it, you don't want to delay doing something with it if it's pertinent to what you're working on or how you're thinking about talent. Um, and therefore, I feel like, again, it just moves much more quickly, but you have a lot of information. I also think it's really about, um, or a real shift in focus now is about um, knowing, knowing who your highest performers are, who have the most potential and are aspirational, and being very keyed in about what they want and what they're seeking. Um, because uh, even in the war for talent back in the early, uh, you know, end of the 90s and, and very early 2000s, um, you know, people who are good have a lot of opportunities. If you're not very much tied into that, um, that can be a real miss for an organization because they may lose some, some critical talent. So that's an interesting point, Allison, because, you know, a lot of companies and, and just in talking to employees, right, they, they like, hey, we, we see the company investing in all the high potentials. What about me? Mm. You're steady Eddie. Don't, don't I deserve some investing? <laughs> yeah. In? So how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think all employees should have the opportunity or all colleagues should, should have the opportunity, especially if they work for, you know, a very large company that's doing very well um, to, to lean into either structured learning um, opportunities or to be able to be, you know, stretched or provide some opportunities um, on the job to, to get better, to learn new things, but also at the same time, even just to keep pace. I always say, um, when I originally, you know, became part of human resources, when I first started working a very, very long time ago, when I left graduate school, if I stopped learning about human resources at that point, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to sustain even the, the roles that I've had through the year. So it's not even just about um, what's next sort of uh, on the docket for a given colleague, but also keeping pace. Um, but, you know, I think there's a reality, and I think we do need to be intellectually honest with ourselves as leaders and also with colleagues, um, either, you know, who are potentially joining the organization or, or who sit in, in an organization that, like any other investment of, of dollars, whether it's at home or at work, um, the, the biggest dollars and time investment are going to go to those colleagues who, you know, likely have the highest performance. Um, and are capable as well as aspirational to do other things. So um, to, I think, say it's always going to be balanced and equal for every single um, colleague or employee, that's not realistic. And again, I think if we're all intellectually honest, even at home, thinking about our own dollars. Um, so my, my message to, uh, whether it's through like an interview process, if someone's asking me about this or uh, you know, whether it's my own friends or family or, or just you know, through general networking, it's you know, think about what you want from, from your career, from your role. Think about the timing of it, because sometimes that shifts over um, one's lifetime about what's important or how much energy and time or even, you know, aspiration one has for, you know, one, one's role or, or, or one's career. Um, 
and then really fully lean into that by having a dialogue with your manager, with your organization. Um, because in fairness, no organization is going to say someone who's just intellectually interested in pursuing something, but isn't really aspirational or capable to do other roles in the company. Um, you know, that, that's just not a good use of the organization's time. You don't want to have colleagues, again, who are just spending a lot of time doing structured learning activities, um, but they're not longer term going to be doing other things in an organization. So I think there's opportunity to lean into those types of things at our company, Tim, for, for all. But again, I think it's what does any given individual, how much time and effort does one want to put into that in service to what longer term? So I think there's a balance. Um, and again, I think we should always be honest uh, with colleagues, whether uh, they're uh, potentially interviewing with a company or, or sitting in an, in an organization. All right. So let me, um, let's switch back a little bit again. You, you do talent management for executives and leaders. So, mm -hmm. and, and I think this, these questions kind of apply to, to all, just it's scaled, right? So if you think about the talent management for executive and leaders, like what do you assess and how do you assess them? And why is it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously there's, there's the functional or capability piece, right? Can somebody do the role that they're being asked to do, right? Which is sort of the basics to, to even get in play. I think post that, it is really a lot about um, a fit in an organization in the sense that when I think about where we work, Kim, it is very much about, you know, pace and intensity and results and, um, you know, being able to deliver. And I think while we're, all organizations say that, um, there are at times, you know, uh, sort of the, the unwritten rules. And again, um, I think for, for, for me, when I think about executive talent, it is an ability to, um, again, do, do one's job at, at, at its most basic level, but then being very, very focused on results and also being very focused on the team so that they're delivering results and that's constantly being pulled, pulled up in the direction of going, hey, we always want to strive for excellence. And then thinking about... Um, uh, the executive thinking about his or her team and going, who, who's the talent that I have? Are they the best? You think about Moneyball, right? Which is the comparison so many people use, um, you know, in, in, in the talent function. But like, do I have a team that's firing on all cylinders and never accept where, you know, somebody's good and the performance may be solid, but if you can get somebody in who's great, that can make such a difference. So holding that accountability to their team and then thinking about developing their own successor, right? So for that executive, again, they've got to deliver on results. They've got to have the best team formed where they're consistently pulling up or raising the bar and making sure they've got great people in each of those roles. And then thinking about their own successor because they know at some point they're likely going to move on. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So when you, it's an interesting point when you say, you know, the leaders executives striving to have a team that's, you know, excellent and high-performing individuals as well. What do you think about um, leaders or just the fact that maybe they don't have somebody that's performing very well on their team? Um, you know, what if they say, well, you know, it takes too much time, energy uh -huh. to do like a performance improvement plan or to deal with that employee or colleague. Um, hey, HR, can you just move them out? Is, is that a right. good uh, lever to pull within the talent management thinking? Yeah, no, um, <laughs> I am smiling here. I, I don't think it is. Um, so I think if you, we, you know, any manager or leader at any level in the organization has talent that's not performing. Um, and so there's the obvious not performing, right, where someone's just not getting the work done. There's sort of the mediocre performance. Um, I always think the ultimate question um, I'll ask a leader or a manager if they're inquiring about a lower performing colleague um, is, you know, if you could go out and this position were open today with this person that's currently in role, you know, be in your top two. And if they don't immediately say yes or they hesitate, I go, then this is not the right person to be in the job. Um, it then comes down to, hey, if they're just 
in the wrong role and they've got other skills or capabilities that can serve the organization, then I think it's okay to engage HR or your talent function to say, um, this is a great person and here's the reasons and they really are high performing and I personally am willing to put my name on them. If you move them over to another part um, of the company, then, then I think that's, that's great. But if you just want to move them to another part of the company or the organization because you don't want to deal with having tough conversations or you don't want to deal with having to actually let somebody go, um, that is the wrong thing to do. And it's a disservice to that person um, who's, who's not performing well because they should be made aware. Um, and it's also very unfair um, and I think unethical to pass somebody on to uh, elsewhere in the organization where another leader is then going to have to deal with the same issues uh, that the current leader uh, is dealing with, as well as the other peers and colleagues that sit with that individual, because you're just going to shift um, the challenge or, or the problem, um, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, so we're going to shift a little bit. So here in Cubicle Insanity, we uh, we like lists. A lot of times we talk about yep. articles or books that uh, yeah. you know have lists. So okay. we uh, we found, we came across an article and um, we looked up the you know top talent management trends for 2019. So I want to mm. get your reaction to the ten bullet points. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> uh, it says the first one is personalization. Historically, HR focused very much on standardization and a one size fits all. Does that make sense from a talent management? Yeah, I don't. So, if I'm thinking about this correctly, so I think, well, historically, HR has focused very much on standardization um, and one size fits all. I think it is, again, shifting here to being much more personalized or specific to the company, to the role, and to the individual. And so sort of, you know, leaning back into my comments earlier just around there's so much information that's coming at all of us. When I think about it from a talent and from um, a work standpoint, having that information is what is going to be able to differentiate if we're able to apply it successfully to making our decisions around talent. Um, so yes, I do think it has to be much more personalized or much more tailored, um, if you will, to each case scenario, individual or situation. Okay. All right. I agree. I think it's becoming much more personalized. Um, so the next one is trust issues. Mm. So I think, you know, in general company, uh, colleagues, employees don't always trust their organizations. There's always something. Yeah. So, you know, what do you think about, you know, do people trust the organizations they work mm. in and how are they, how are companies changing this? Sure. So I think in any relationship, personal or professional, um, or with a, if it's with a brand or a large organization like, like a, you know, an employer is just so important and trust cannot be rushed in terms of establishing it. Um, you can build rapport early on, you can establish a, a connection point, but trust takes time. And there's actually been a lot of studies that have been done on this and there's no one's figured out a way to speed up trust because it's trust and it takes time to get there you know, with someone or with something. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've seen over time, again, with so much more information coming at us and that's also available, um, trust can be lost in an instant. And, you know, I think uh, organizations, brands, colleagues, even individuals, even in our personal lives, it's, it's very, you know, something changes, it gets out there. Um, that can be broken uh, very easily and it's very hard to, to repair if it's even repairable at all once trust um, has been broken. So in thinking about trust with an organization one works in, um, again, I think that's very individual, it's very personal, um, and it's both, you know, with the people that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis, but longer term, you know, the, the larger organization and, and how it makes decisions. So. Um, I think ideally everyone is seeking to have trust and they aspire and they search for that. 
but I also think it again it takes time to to get there, and it's also very much um, a balance for any individual um, about how they define trust. That it links back to how you even think about your own values, right? Because mm-hmm. what I might define as an absolute trust might be a little more gray for someone else. And, and that may not, I don't think that's necessarily a good or bad thing. I think it's just sort of the lens. Um, but trust is important. So understanding, you know, uh, just as we think about, you know, for, for colleagues or employees, you know, they're, everyone's different. Everyone's, um, has different wants and needs. I think it's the same with trust about how that connection, um, is established, but I think it's incredibly important. Um, I think it's on our consumers' uh, minds and, and all of our minds, right, when we go to make purchases or do things. Um, so therefore, it's on companies' minds, and it circles back then then to employees or colleagues, because especially for millennials and, and I think for the Z's that are coming up, um, they care about the companies that they work with, how they do business, the products that they make, and we see that um, more and more. I mean, most recently. Uh, you know, at uh, a large employer tech company, there there was a, a walkout, if you will, that, that was hitting news. And it was because the organization was saying, we're, we're concerned, <laughs> our employees were saying, hey, we're concerned about the way in which we're doing business. And, you know, even 10 years ago, I don't think that was something we would have thought was, was on the horizon only a decade away. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think um, the uh, earlier career uh, employees and people that are coming into the workforce, this is a big thing for them. I think, you know, when I started into the workforce, you just automatically trusted an organization, especially if it was right. um, like a longer established company. Mm. And, you know, hey, they, they kind of automatically had that trust because, hey, they had a good reputation. They, they didn't right. lay off people. They paid well in the community. Mm. So that was the trust. Now it's, I think the trust is a little bit different. I think those are still important things, but I think trust right. shift a little bit. Like what is the brand? Is it doing good things for the world or is it causing like environmental issues? Right. So right. I think it's a shift of trust. Yes. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's most, most, individuals don't think of themselves as working at only one employer for their entire lifetime, lifetime, the way maybe our parents did. And so um, it's a shorter horizon of perhaps what an organization is seeking from, from an individual and what the individual is seeking from that particular organization. So Mm -hmm. even the the sort of boundaries or dynamics of trust um, are likely impacted by that, where maybe, you know, to the situation you were describing, the trust was, I'm going to work here until the day I retire. Right. Whereas the trust that I know when I put for myself, when I think of myself as a, as a colleague who's being managed and functioning in a big company, the trust that I'm seeking is, is not absolute in the sense of like, I expect a job for life, but rather I want honesty. No matter what's mm-hmm. happening, I just want to, you know, get, I understand sometimes there might be things I can't know about. But I want when I'm being given information that it's accurate so that I'm not misled. So yeah. to me, again, as long as I have good, honest information that's true, at least at that moment in time, and I trust that the people I work with are going to give me that, then I overall have trust, again, assuming that the products and the ethics and all the good legal things are, <laughs> are happening. Yeah. So I don't want to discount that. But um, so just a little bit of a... Uh, uh, a lens from my point of view. Yeah. So th- another trend in um, talent management is development. And it, development is being viewed as a service. What are your thoughts there? So development as a service. Um, so am I interpreting that correctly? Meaning it's like a service to employees? Is yeah. that yeah. okay? Yeah. I mean, I, I think again, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, right? I think development opportunities should be available to to employees at you know at their employer or at the place where they work and i think again that's going to look a little bit different depending on the role or the size um of an organization so it being a service to employees yes i think that should be available i think the value at which any given employee views that as a service um is going to depend uh upon that individual um, but also that's where I think the, when I think about, you know, it's a shared ownership or relationship around um, development. I think the reality is 
no one cares more about my career than me. So when I'm thinking about my own development, um, part of it is I do have an expectation for my employer, but I do also think it's uh, the onus is on me where I've got to be clear on what it is that I want to do, <laughs> you know, have, have those discussions. Mm -hmm. But that, again, that development, once, you know, there's an alignment or a discussion on that, it is, it is provided. And then going back to our highest performers, you know, really our high flyers who are capable as well as aspirational and um, really want to move their careers uh, that, that those development opportunities. Um, and again, like 70% of them will likely be on the job. 20% will be more um, from a, from a structured learning. Um, those, those colleagues or those employees are the ones who who will probably feel that the most as being a service, if you will, because they're the ones who, who, who want to get there and are constantly thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. And they're going to be the ones who are likely moving the needle from a company performance um, or results standpoint. Yeah. Does that make sense or did it, I hit it, Kim? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. I, I will tell you, we probably won't go through all 10 and I'll put the link to the, um, oh, okay. the article on the on our website, kidconsanity.com. Oh, but let me hit just a couple of more. Um, yep. Apologies. If I'm being long-winded, just let no, me know. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I just... Uh, Again, we, we only want to tease the listeners. They, we want them to, you know, also read the article, the full article. and not, Great. And we just want to give them some insights here. Um, here's one that I, that I found kind of interesting in the list is um, no more paternalism. So let me read you what they wrote mm. here in the article. Okay. Often HR takes a very paternalistic and normative approach. Our leaders and managers should be good coaches. We expect our employees to take responsibility for their own development. As the reality is that many managers are not good coaches, the next step is training, mandatory. Also, HR designs a process that forces managers to have coaching sessions with their direct reports at least twice a year. I say boo on twice a year. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm going to give you my opinion. <laughs> I know I'm sure. asking for your opinion, but... I think a, a coach, a manager, a mentor, um, leader, whatever title you want to give the person that's working with somebody else or that is managing, as, has direct reports, however, again, however you want to describe it in your organization, if you're only talking to your employee colleagues twice a year and it's mandatory, um, I'm going to be hardline here. You should be fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not fire. Okay. That's a little extreme. <laughs> but yeah. Nobody yeah. can't be counterbalances me here and says, well, that's okay. a extreme. No black and white. Yeah. Okay. So let me back <laughs> off a little bit. In this sure. case, I think if it's just, you know, hey, you're only checking in twice a year, I, I don't yeah. think you belong in a leadership or a managerial type of position. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it certainly resonates. It is, yeah, I think anyone who's a good manager, whether you're managing entry-level talent or um, you're managing very senior talent, having those ongoing touch points and discussions um, about performance um, that's also reflective uh, is, is incredibly important. So the more often they're happening, I think the better uh, result we're going to get around performance, but also then, you know, employee engagement, um, you know, having established trust, and then also being able to make good decisions with good information, again, because you're having these frequent um, touch points. I think the reality is still too often, so many companies, you know, big and small, mom and pop, Fortune 500, because somebody's good at what they do, they then put them in charge of a bunch of people and there's no training. There's not a lot of um, coaching or touch points to them around people management, or even if it's being offered, the people who are moving into those roles for the first time of managing people think, I know what to do. I'm just going to be, you know, friendly. I know these people, I'm going to be the cool manager. And just so often as we all know, um, that doesn't work. And so I think organizations, again, big or small, and even if you're just a five person, you know, operation, it is making sure that you're putting people in roles who know how to manage people, or if it's their first time, 
or if it's an unknown that the manager of the people manager is, you know, being very mindful and checking in because again, just too often and because we're spread out, a lot of times we're virtual or at, you know, different sites or different parts of the world, there isn't those checkpoints. Um, but yes, I think the more, you know, touch points that we have, the more feedback we can give, um, I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but I also know, uh, you know, that it will yield better performance for the company um, or, or for the organization as well. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, one last point in this article, and um, I think it's one of the key points, and uh, is um, it, you know HR or talent management is about people. Um, you see, all too often, workforce analytics are taking the human out of HR mm. slash talent management. So, you know, what 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 do you think people can do? to to not just become so dependent on the analytics because i think the pendulum has shifted so how do we move it a little bit back yeah so the analytics you know the analytics are numbers right so there still has to be people to run numbers on if you will right Right. so um (laughs) look technology and just time right even 100 years from now 200 years from now things will evolve likely in ways that you know we we can't even imagine and maybe even in some ways that we can roles um and opportunities those those things are going to shift right where things can be automated they will be um and where things can be done more efficiently or repeatedly those kinds of things will happen but at the end of the day there's still going to be need to be people um who are able to think, who are able to lead, who are able to, you know, connect. Um, so that will shift and that will change. Um, but, 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 you know, it, it's, again, it might be one day, but it's hard for me to picture right now where that just completely goes away. But analytics, you know, there's, there's good things about analytics, right? Because again, if we're even just looking at our pipelines for talent, if we want to see how many people are high performers and they're capable um, but then also those that are aspirational. So I'll go back to my dad moving to, to Paris with my mom, who was, you know, again, pregnant at the time, they're a young newlywed couple in their late 20s. You know, they, the company he worked for, they might have had a number of people who were capable to do that role. But did, were they clear that they didn't have people who were willing to move, right? So if I go and look at our analytics, or perhaps it's being referenced here, is, you know, we need to have the analytics. It's data. Don't be afraid of the analytics and the data because the data just ref- is reflecting what's already there. Leverage the, the, the analytics to make good people decisions and to have honest conversations. So I think too often when organizations um, are, I won't say accused of, but, you know, thought of as not, you know, sort of removing the people um, aspect to it of it or those touch points, it is because managers or leaders are not having direct and honest conversations with colleagues about, you know, where they stand or where their future is going. So um, again, don't be afraid of analytics. Don't be afraid of data. People are important. The data and the analytics reflect what's happening with people. Yeah. And the best way we can serve others is, again, to have honest conversations um, with them so they can think about if there's somebody who's in a role who, you know, is going to have to move to, to Paris one day and they don't want to do that. They should be thinking about other things they want to do. Or if they're in a role that might, you know, go away due to automation at some future point, they can think about what do I do um, separately to get trained. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. Did that hit the point? Um, yeah. Or did I miss it? Yeah, no, I think it did. <laughs> So do you have any other, uh, we're going to kind of wind this up here, Allison, sure. any other uh, thoughts around talent management that you want to share with our listeners? Because we yeah. would like to invite you back to discuss this more because I know we'll have questions. Oh, good. Well, I would love to come back. So I, <laughs> I'm already excited. So yeah, closing thoughts about talent management. Um, the one thing I'll say is, you know, too, you know, so so often people think of something as being new or it's all of a sudden happening now. And again, I'll say with talent management, with talent development, with all the things that we've discussed, these are all things that have always been happening and they may have been happening informally or as I mentioned about that other organization, they were just decisions being made by the CEO. But these are things, again, that have been happening, have, you know, been given more structure and attention now. It's sort of having its its moment in time. So I encourage um 
all of uh, the listeners out there to, to lean into it, um, you know, and, and really think about how do you leverage it to, you know, better serve the organizations that we're all a part of, but then also the people, right? So because again, it's about having honest, direct conversations, and also about the organization being able to make good and informed decisions. So it'll continue to evolve, and, and it'll shift. But um, I think it's an exciting, you know, tool um, and function, if you will, to be able to leverage to, to help organizations be successful, as well as all the people that, that work in them. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks, Allison. So at Thank this you. point, normally Tammy states the obvious, so I'm going to give it my best shot to kind of hit a few key points that you, okay. that you talk through and we discussed today. So it kind of the first one I heard was, you know, take the job nobody else wants. So as we learned from your dad, he kind of raised his hand and said, hey, I'll go to Paris. Um, and then the other thing that I heard was talent management is the right person, right role. So do they have the aspirations to do the role? Um, and if so, then they're probably the right person. We just have to find the right role. Another, yep. <laughs> another thing that you said is around the aspirations is you have to have a discussion with your manager uh, about your aspirations. The thing I think also you have to think about is be ready for the yes when you tell the manager you know, hey, here's my aspiration, sort of like what happened with your dad. He raised his hand or said, hey, I, you know, I could take that on. And they said yes. Mm -hmm. So they had to be ready for yep. the yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing that you talked about was development opportunities. It should be available for all. And I think that that's a key message for everybody listening is that, you know, companies do invest money in employees. And yes, sometimes they do invest in more money in so-called high potentials, um, but you're also being invested in, and you also have to invest in yourself. Um, there's a lot of learning management systems that companies have, so take advantage of those and develop yourself. The um, last point that I think is key here is that um, our people are still human, right? And we need them to think, and the analytics, don't be afraid of them. You leverage them to help you develop and manage your talent who are yep. humans. Did I miss yeah. anything? Nope. I think that's great. All right. Okay. So I'd like to thank all, uh, Allison, I'd like to thank you specifically for, for being on and um, all the great insights you've given us. And I hope that you'll join us again in another episode of Cubicle Insanity. Um, but also I'd like to thank all of our listeners and thank you to our active military and our veterans. And please stay tuned for our next episode of Cubicle Insanity.